We're going to look from Acts chapter 2, verse 42, all the way through Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Because it's such a big portion of text, I'm just going to read a few verses, but I want you to follow with me as I read these few verses. Acts chapter 2, verse 43, says this. It says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Then go down to verse uh, 6 of chapter 3. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. I'll drop down to verse 16. Peter speaking again. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. And lastly, drop down to verse 19. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be plotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive, until the time for restoring all things about, about which God spoke by the mouth of the prophets, of his holy prophets, long ago. It says plainly in verse 43 that many signs and wonders were happening through the apostles. And it's important to recognize at this point in the book of Acts that the main miracle working was happening through the apostles. Luke wants us to understand that. That at this point in time, what's happening is an affirmation of their apostolic authority. That is, the fact that they've been sent by God, apostles have sent one. They've been sent by God to establish the gospel in all the known world, starting in Jerusalem. That, that is one of the main things that's happening here. But it's also important for us to recognize that that apostolic authority was indeed confirmed by real Miracles. In fact, it says, as we just said, many miracles. And so with these many miracles, we have to ask the question, why does Luke decide to put this one down? Why this healing of the lame man? What are we meant to, to learn? As the reader, what are we meant to learn from this story? Four, four reasons why I think uh, he, he uses this story. And we're going to look at these things. And, and this is, there's a lot of text, okay? There is a lot of text. It's going to be difficult to pay attention, but I'm, in, I'm just really encouraging you to keep your, your eyes and your nose in the book and be willing to think outside the box a little bit. Just be willing to see what God has said, what, what he has inspired Luke to write, and be willing to think outside the box a little bit. Stay with us. So, so here's the first of four reasons why I think Luke highlights this story. The first is this. This story flows out of a devoted community. Look at verse 42. It says, and they, this is the new believers, this is the, the 120 believers that were already there, disciples that were already there, with the 3,000 souls added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done 
through the apostles. Now, now list, Luke lists four sort of interconnected expressions of worship. The, the kind of worship that the first Jesus followers were committed to practice. I mean, this is what they were committed to do. This wasn't just like, yeah, if it works out, we'll show up and we'll go through this. Or, yeah, yeah, occasionally we'll, when we're feeling a little low or need a bit kind of pepping up, we'll show up and we'll, 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 we'll hear some of this stuff. No, this is what they were devoted to, committed to. We mentioned some, some weeks ago from this verse that, that the word could be translated addicted to. That they were so dependent on this corporate worship And Luke wants us to see this. Now, this is such an important passage from verse 42 to 47 that we're actually going to unpack this more thematically at the end of this month, on the the fourth fourth Sunday of this month. We're going to unpack these verses more. But I just want you to see that these were not just personal disciplines. This apostles' doctrine, or or hearing the, the apostles teach, or fellowship, that is, being together, or the breaking of bread, which was probably a fellowship meal always connected to communion or prayers. That these weren't just personal disciplines. They were devoted to doing this corporately. This was corporate worship. And this corporate worship ended up developing them and manifesting in them this radical work of love. Look at verse 44. It says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they re- received their food with, gla- with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. They weren't just devoted to this corporate worship. They were devoted to a radical love. Luke's describing a transformation so radical it actually affected how they spent their money. That's uncomfortable. We'll unpack that more last Sunday. The point is this. This is not about the early church introducing some kind of new economic ideology. This is the Holy Spirit working so radically in people's lives bringing the, the reality of who Jesus is and what he's done for them to bring such a transformation that they begin to think about, gosh, we are a family, and how we spend our time and our talent and our treasure speaks of that. And it's no accident that this story of the healing of the layman comes from this context. It's out of a devoted community that God works most powerfully. You know, I've, I've known people that seem to have really powerful individual ministries, whether that's uh, you know, doing work on the street or, or, or maybe even working in the supernatural, just powerful preaching where they were traveling around and doing something. Very powerful ministries. But you know what? Those are actually the exception to the rule. You know what God really wants to do? is what he wants to do in us and through us as a church family. We don't want to miss this. See, it's, it's a verse that we all know really well. It's a verse that we quote, especially when we feel like church people haven't treated us very well. Jesus says this. He tells his disciples on the night before he's arrested and crucified, he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, Jesus says, if you have love for one another. 
It's a commitment that we have to each other that creates a community that demonstrates the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's out of that that these supernatural things came to pass. So again, we'll unpack more of that, those verses when we get to uh, the fourth Sunday this month. But also, listen, he, I, one of the reasons Luke wants to highlight this specific heal, healing of the lame man miracle is because it provides a picture of our human need. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, that is the ninth hour. And a lame man, a man, I'm sorry, a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now I want you to notice the different groups that are mentioned here. We have four distinct groups. We have Peter and John, possibly just re representing the whole of the, uh, the 120. Don't know if they are all there, but there's probably more than just Peter and John going up to pray at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. You have the, main, the man who's lame from birth, and we're told that basically that, that, that he was carried to this place, this beautiful gate, a, a, a gate that was indeed uh, silver and gold and bronze and gorgeous, a gate that would be pretty smart guy, put me there because people will see the gate, they'll see the money, they'll see me, and there'll be a place where I can maybe make a living. But, but not to, to be cynical about what's going on here because we shouldn't be, but he was obviously strategically replaced because this is the only way this guy would have had a chance to have any revenue. And because he was a man who was Lame from his birth, this means, and if, if he's this close to the temple, he was a Jewish man, more than likely. But he was a man who was never allowed to enter the temple because of his handicap. He, he came that close, but never entered in. And so here he is, he, he's there, the people who brought them are there. He's there daily, it says. And there's also those who are entering the temple through this gate. So four distinct people, and here's the thing that we need to recognize, all four of these groups radically needed Jesus. And all of us, no matter what situation that we find ourselves in today, we need Jesus. You might feel like Peter and John, I'm so glad. It's good to come and celebrate, to seek God together on his day. I want to be in the temple. You might feel that way. Maybe you feel like this lame man, I got no choice. This is the only place I'm going to get what I need. And though I never feel like I actually get to enter in, this is where I got to be. Maybe you feel like one of those friends who brought them, brought them there. I, you know, I need to be in the temple, but I can't forget about these guys, so I'll bring them to the temple. Or maybe you're just those who just pass by. But here's the reality. No matter who you are, you need Jesus. You need to hear this story. And it says in verse 3 that seeing Peter and John, this lame man, seeing Peter and John about to go in the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, remember, he's been doing this daily. He's been there daily. In fact, it's interesting. There's a really good chance that because he'd been there daily doing this, when Jesus had gone to the temple, Jesus had walked by him and not healed him. Think about that. So he'd been there daily, and these guys had walked by him before, but he asked for alms this time. It says in verse 4, And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, saying, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He's thinking, okay, okay, good. This one worked. They're going to give me some dough. 
But Peter says plainly, I have no silver or gold. Apostles don't pay, get paid very well. He says, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now, here's the thing that's really important, okay? Peter says to him, in the name of Jesus, and everyone there needed to know the name of Jesus. What do we mean by the name of Jesus? Well, you're going to have to wait till verse 11 to get to that. But he goes on to say in verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. I love Luke, who is a doctor, his description of this. He's giving a really specific description to say not just like, oh, he could walk, but like something happened to his physical body. And and here's the evidence of it. Verse 8 says, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk, and he entered into the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Remember, this is the first time he's ever been in. And he's not just kind of, he's not, he doesn't have like swag. He's not like going, that's right. He's like, this is amazing. I'm, I'm in the temple. I'm here. I'm finally getting to, to draw near to God. This is amazing. And people are like, come down now. <laughs> but he does this, and it says in verse 9, all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him. They knew this was the guy that was had been born lame. They, they'd saw his shriveled little legs. They'd saw him laying there. They'd probably sensed, they could have even possibly smelled the bed sores that had been there from laying in the same place over and over again. They saw him in his poverty and his need. And here he is now leaping and praising and walking into the temple. They recognized him as the one who sat by the beautiful gate of the temple, asking for alms, and they were filled with wonder and amazement. Now, here's what's going on. It's important here that we recognize something, okay? Listen. No one could deny the legitimacy of this miracle. Now, I, I want to say something about miracles really quick, okay? So, just so I'm not misunderstood as we talk about this. I believe God still does miracles today. I have seen God heal people Today, And I want to be clear about that because as I talk about this, I know some of you are going to go, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. And also some of you are going to go, but, but do you really believe, John, the way you kind of explain that? Do you really believe? And I want to be really clear. I really believe God does miracles today. But one of the things that I tend to do with people when, when they've experienced a miracle or when they, if we pray for a miracle is for them to, to, as much as they can, get it documented. Because lots of people make claims about miracles, and, well, maybe they have got healed, maybe they, we haven't. So as much as we can, can we document that? So when we, exactly, so we can give glory to God for what he's done. This is one of those documented ones. No doubting, no smoke and mirrors. There's no one that, who could deny that was there that God had actually done something radical. And, and, and I love this because this man doesn't just He doesn't just get new legs, he gets new life. He he, he actually experiences something that all of us need to experience. It's interesting because Jesus said something uh, right after he had healed a paralyzed man. You can read about this later on in Matthew chapter 9, but 
In Matthew chapter 9, Jesus has heals this paralyzed man. And then the next scene that Matthew shows us is the Pharisees, the religious leaders, kind of rebuking him for doing things or, or questioning him. And they're questioning him specifically because he hung out with those who were considered unclean. Why would you, Jesus, why would you have dinner with a paralyzed man or a sinner or someone who can't really draw near to God? Why would you spend time with them? And this is what Jesus' response was. Listen, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Jesus says, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. For I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. See, even, listen, even if we feel today like Peter and John, we know, listen, we know the Lord has already saved us. Do you realize he saved us because we're sinners? Some of us don't feel like we're bad enough to be saved. Man, I got to tell you, you are so much worse than you think you are. <laughs> and I mean that, I, I mean that sincerely, and I, and I mean that, with all humility. You're way worse than you think you are. But you know what else? You are far more loved than you can even imagine. Amen. We are all like this man, born lame, unable to walk with God unless God intervenes in our life. That's the second picture, or the second reason. First, it flows out of devoted community, this, this radical healing, and second, it, it's a picture of our human need. Third, and probably most importantly, it exalts the suffering servant. Look what happens, verse 11. In verse 11, it says, Now while he clung to Peter and John, I can imagine him just kind of hanging on them and jumping up and down, and they're going, Okay, dude, this is great, but you're embarrassing us. Um, that all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, Men of Israel. You know, he, they've drawn a crowd. Right? Here's a massive crowd. Now, if you're going to take an offering, this is the time. <laughs> but he says, men of Israel, listen. He says, why do you wonder at this? And why do you stare at us as, 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 as though by our own power and piety we made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus. How many gods are mentioned there? One. One. Just be really clear about that. But Peter wants these men of Israel to make no doubt that the God of their fathers, the God of the Old Testament, you might say, that that God is the God who glorified Jesus. That God is the God who's working through the apostles in the name of Jesus right there. See, see, what's happening here is not so much about the apostles, though, as we said, this is part of what Luke's desire in this first section of Acts is to show this apostolic authority, to affirm an apostolic authority that these, these apostles had, a unique authority. But it's not so much about the apostles, the sent ones, but about the Jesus who sent them. That he's the God, that his father is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 13 he goes on to say, whom, Peter, he does this. We saw this already, didn't we, last week. Peter is not afraid to, to call these guys out. He says, whom you delivered over, notice, and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him, but you denied the Holy One and Righteous One and asked 
for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life. Now, we don't want to miss what's happening here. When Peter says this to these Jewish men, when he says he's the holy one and righteous one, he's being really clear that not only is he the Messiah, God's chosen king, he's being clear about that, but there's something divine about Jesus. They would have had at least granted that. But even more pointed in verse 15 when he says, you've killed the author of life. He's doing two things. One, he's referring to Jesus as the creator. And he's bringing this radical irony. You killed the author of life. Can God be killed? There's a big philosophical question for you. No, he can't. God can't change. But when God the Son takes on flesh, walking as God in human form, as he's still the author of life, he's still the one who created all things in the beginning, he's still the one, according to John chapter 1, who, who spoke things into existence. That is still who Jesus was, God the Son. And so when he's on that cross, and there's a separation between God the Son and God the Father, it's because these chose to kill the author of life. Listen, be, let's be really clear about something. Really clear about something. It wasn't the Jews who killed Jesus. It was all of us. It was our own sin. We killed the author of life. People have said, well, there was a song, popular song in the, in, in the uh, 90s, oh, what if God was one of us? Just like a, a bum like one of us. It's a stranger on the bus. What if, what if, what if God actually became a man and walked this earth? Well, duh, he did 2,000 years ago. And this is what we did to him. When he came, here's what we did to him. We killed him. We crucified him. This is important. Okay, listen. In fact, I encourage you guys later on to read John chapter 18, verse 28 through verse, uh, chapter 19, verse 16, dealing with this whole uh, this whole, the whole issue with Jesus before Pontius Pilate and the Israelites wanting, uh, the Jewish leaders at least, wanting Jesus crucified. But I want to tell you a little story to show you that this is still in our hearts. Uh, again, way back in the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was doing youth work in the United States, um, I heard a story, I heard two stories in the same week. One was from the manager of the local Christian bookstore who happened to go to our church and she was telling me that, that they were finding these little, these bracelets, these were really popular at this time, this, these little kind of rubber band bracelets, and they said WWJD on them. What would Jesus do is what that stood for. And it was, they were bracelets based on a popular book at the time, What Would Jesus Do? And so the, the, these were bracelets they found were being stolen. <laughs> they were being stolen from the Christian bookstore. What would Jesus do? And so she was flabbergasted. She goes, I, I just don't get it. And she goes, you know, I, I, I recognize a couple of the youth that I thought might have done it, not from our youth group, just, just that I, I think I've seen them around. But I just I couldn't believe it. So then that same week I also heard from one of our youth leaders. It was a, a young man in high school, so like 17, but he was also a leader among the, his peers. And he was telling me a story of that he saw this person who he knew wasn't, wasn't a Christian wearing the WWJD bracelet. And so he's like, oh, wow, maybe they got saved. So he goes and talks to them. Hey, hey, where'd you get that bracelet? And they kind of just smiled. And I go, are you a Christian now? And they're all, no. So why do you have that bracelet? Do you know what that bracelet means? The person said, yeah, I know what it means. It means we want Jesus dead. 
This is in our hearts before God changes our hearts. Now, maybe you're here, and this is Christianity kind of new to you, so you're thinking to yourself, uh, no, 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 I, I, don't even, I haven't really thought that much about Jesus. And I definitely didn't necessarily want him to die. I've got nothing against him. But this is the issue. It's the same issue that happens with every single person. We want to rule our own lives. And when someone comes on the scene who's clearly worthy to rule over our lives, we go, no, no, I don't want that. I ain't having that. I want that guy dead. This is what's in our hearts. This is what Peter's bringing up. Now, now verse 15, all this is going to make one big point. Just follow with me. Verse 15, right? You killed the author of life, whom, notice, God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, Peter says, and his name, that is, by faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know, and the faith that is through Jesus has given this man perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, now this is really important. It's important for us to recognize when, when Peter talks about name, he's referring to the character and authority in Jesus. This is not some sort of mystic idea in the name Jesus, or if you were in a Spanish-speaking country, Jesus, as if that name has power by itself. J-E-S-U-S in English, however it's spelled in Hebrew as Yeshua, however it's spelled in Spanish, that name by itself doesn't have any mystical power. It's this person, this Jesus of Nazareth, this is who has power. Faith in his name, what Peter's referring to here, is faith in the character and identity of who Jesus is. Now, there's nothing wrong with praying in Jesus' name. I close most of my prayers in Jesus' name. That's not wrong. It's not like some mystical formula. It's a good way to remember why we have a right to approach God because of Jesus. Who gives us the authority to trust that we can take God's promises. Jesus does. So we pray in Jesus' name, under his authority, by his character. Nothing wrong with praying in Jesus' name, like literally. But there's no mystical power in that. If you forget to say in Jesus' name, they'll go, oh, wait, wait, in Jesus' name. Because I didn't say in Jesus' name, so nothing's going to happen. That's not the way it works. That's not what Peter's teaching. What Peter's wanting these people to understand is that it's only this Jesus this rejected Jesus, whom they rejected, is also the resurrected Jesus. And this Jesus is still doing what his work is to do. He's continuing, the theme of Acts, to do what he's promised to do through his apostles and through his people. He's doing this. And this is important, too, because here's the main point I wanted to make about how this exalts the suffering Jesus. Listen, the rejected Jesus still healed the lame man. I want you to think about that for a second. The Jesus that we push away, the Jesus that we say in our hearts, as the religious leaders in the, in the, in the past have said, let me just say, I'm talking to you guys who claim to be believers, oftentimes people that are new to Christianity, if that's you, you're new to Christianity, this is all new to you, you might go, I'm still checking this stuff out. I don't know if I would say I rejected Jesus. But, but for you who are especially religious, church-going people, you do this as much as anybody else. We do this. We, like the religious people of old, say we will not have this man rule over us. And yet this man, the man Christ Jesus, still brings us healing. 
this is, this is why, guys, this is why I'm so vexed by people who put the emphasis on your faith and my faith. The emphasis is on the person we believe. Listen, if you're here today and you're thinking, I, I like to believe in this Jesus, I've been coming for a while, I'm, I'm wrestling, I'm thinking this is the Jesus, I, this is the one I need to believe, or if you're here for the first time today and you're going, yes, I think I need to believe in this Jesus, I, I, I think I need to kind of put faith in him, but I just feel like I don't really have much faith. That's okay. You can have the smallest faith possible, just put it in the biggest God possible. The God who resurrected, who was rejected and then resurrected, and the God who still loves, loves the people even who've pushed him away. This is the point. This is why we follow Jesus, the suffering servant. Because not only can he relate to us in the unjust suffering we've experienced, but in the injustice we've propagated, he's still gracious enough to meet us right there. Is there a God better than that? Oh, I don't believe in any God, you say. Well, you believe in something, because everybody does. Maybe you believe in collective humanity, or maybe you believe just in your own ability to kind of stay alive. But is that a better place for your small faith than this big Jesus? And you who are, you Christian, you Jesus follower, who when you're tempted to lean on your own understanding, is your understanding strong enough for the faith that you actually need? I'm not saying stop thinking, stop studying. I'm not saying that. But if you're leaning on your understanding instead of leaning on the God of the Bible, on Jesus Christ, it's not your, so much that your faith is the, object, the faith has failed, it's the object of your faith that's failed because you're leaning on your own understanding. Do you see what I'm saying? And then, and then Peter keeps preaching, and this is what I love too about how this exalts the suffering servant. Look at verse 17. It says, and now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. Uh, that's really gracious. He's not saying ignorance is an excuse. He's saying, I, I get that you don't always get it. Jesus said a similar thing on the cross, didn't he? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I'm so glad that <laughs> ignorance doesn't disqualify us from getting saved. <laughs> We're pretty stupid people, let's be honest. He says, as, as did also your rulers, he says, verse 18, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ, that's his chosen king, would suffer, he thus fulfilled. In other words, this has always been God's plan. Verse 19, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. There's a lot here. And we'll unpack these things a bit more as we continue to go through the book of Acts. But just follow me with these few things here in verses 17 and 21. In a, really, in a nutshell, what Peter is saying to them, listen, repentance, which is simply, I'm, I'm walking this direction, or I think this is what I have to believe, or here's where I have to trust. Repentance is, I change my mind. 
I can't trust that. I need to trust him. That's repentance. He says, repentance and turning back, because he's talking to Israelites who, who know of the living God, know the true and living God, yet have rejected him when he came in the flesh. He's saying, turn back to God. And he's saying that to them because, listen, their biggest sin, listen, the biggest sin of the Israelites was not worshiping false idols at other times or it was not uh, any kind of sexual sin they would have fallen into or any kind of greed they would have fallen into. Their biggest sin was our biggest sin. It's rejecting Jesus. He says, turn back. So here's what happens when we repent. Listen, three things quickly. Forgiveness through Jesus. Forgiveness. Man, I'll tell you, we never outgrow forgiveness. The longer I walk with Jesus, the more I realize how often I sin against him and sin against others. And I'm so thankful that I'm freely forgiven because of his sacrifice. Forgiveness through Jesus. Listen, relationship with Jesus, this this refreshing comes from a relationship with the living God. Are you dry? I'm talking now, I'm talking to you again, you guys as Christians now. Is your spiritual life dried up? Do you just feel like worn out? Like you just don't think you can take another step. You're wondering if I can go. Listen, can I give you a really, some simple advice? Repent. I'm not denying that your circumstances are really tough. They're probably tougher than I recognize. I'm not denying that people may have sinned against you because people sin against us all the time. What I'm saying is, if you want refreshing, repent, turn back to God. Because maybe the thing is, in those circumstances that are difficult, in that being sinned against and feeling that, what's happened is you succumb to a temptation, which is, I can't trust God anymore. I'll just, I'll do the best I can. And God's saying, repent, turn back to me. That times of refreshing may come. I spent most of my life living uh, in a very dry, hot place, playing sports outside. And sometimes for years, we didn't have air conditioning in our house. And I know what it means to be tired and thirsty. And then we, when we got to go to a friend's house who had a pool, we didn't have a pool. But when we went to a friend's house who had a pool, and maybe they had a pool and an ice box full of Gatorade or something. You guys know what Gatorade is? Yeah, we have Gatorade here, yeah. <laughs> then it was like, oh, finally, refreshment. Well, Jesus says, come swim in my pool. Come drink my Gatorade. Come have the refreshment that I've paid for you. Turn back to God. He says in verse 22, listen. Peter preaches in verse 22. He says, Moses says, now that he's got their attention, hey, Moses says, ooh, Moses, we like Moses. They listen. He says, and he, he's quoting here, in fact, you can look this up later. This is also something to look up. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 14 to 18. You can look this up later. He's not quoting the, all that section, but it's good to read that whole section. 
He says, the Lord God, this is Moses, he's quoting, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. He, you shall listen to him in whatever he tells you, and it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from his people. And all the prophets have spoken from Samuel, and, and this is now Peter talking, verse 24, and all those prophets have spoken from Samuel, and those who came after him also proclaim these days. In other words, Peter's saying, listen, what did Moses promise us? We're so into Moses. He gave us God's law. And what did he promise us? God's going to send another prophet like me. And you've got to listen to him with the same authority you're giving me. And if you don't, you'll be rejected in the same way you're rejected if you reject me. And Peter says, it's not just Moses, it's every prophet since that said the same thing. See, all the prophets testify to the coming of Jesus, to the reign of Jesus, to the trustworthiness of Jesus. We're going to see more about this when we get to chapter 7. But look at verse 25. It says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and here he's quoting uh, uh, Genesis 12, which we'll read in a minute. He says, And in your offspring shall all families of the earth be blessed. God, Peter says, having raised up a servant that's resurrected Jesus, sent him to you first, to the Jew first, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, here's what you need to recognize, okay? What does God say here? What, what does Peter say, right? The Holy Spirit say through Peter on this day. He says through Peter on this day, here's the blessing God has for you. Repent. We have to start seeing repentance as a blessing. When we're convicted and go, gosh, I need to turn back to God, that's God's grace to us. The fact that we can turn back to God is God's grace to us. The privilege of turning back to God has been purchased for us by Jesus. Listen, Genesis chapter 12. This is the, the part that, that Peter's quoting here. Genesis 12, verses 2 and 3. God says to Abraham, or actually Abram, he was still called at this time. He says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will dishonor, and him who dishonors you, I will curse in you. All the families of the earth shall be blessed. How does that happen? How does God bless all the families of the earth? How does he fulfill this promise to Abraham? Listen to this, Galatians chapter 3. Paul writing here, and the scriptures, Paul writes, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Do you get this? The gospel is inside this promise to Abraham to, to build a great nation, Israel. And that promise is fulfilled through primarily through Jesus. And I think God has a plan for ethnic Israel. That's a different Bible study. But the point here is this. Listen, the point here is the promises that God made to Abraham are fulfilled through Jesus. Which is why Peter says here, even though, again, Luke's point in the first part of Acts is just talking about how the gospel spreads in Jerusalem, how the gospel is going to the Jew first, yet even here he hints, doesn't he? What does he say? 
Verse 25, and in your offspring, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you away from your wickedness. Guys, listen. God's calling us to be a people who repent so that, so that we are refreshed, so that we, with a clear conscience and, a, and an enthusiastic mind, say to others, man, repent. It's so worth it to turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Repent. It's a great word. It's a great thing. We use it sometimes the wrong way. Repent, you worthless sinners. We are all worthless sinners. That is us, okay? That's not inaccurate. But that's that's not the point. The point is, repent, turn to God, because Jesus has made it able for you to turn to God, turn to God and receive this refreshing that he's promised you. Do it right now. No, I'm talking to you guys here. Do it right now. Cry out to God right now and say to him, God, I, I haven't wanted to trust Jesus, but I know I need you. I, I felt dry and weary, but I want more. I want to turn from the things that I thought I could find rest in or refreshment in, and I want to turn to you. I want the refreshing that you've purchased for me by your life and death, and resurrection. I want to be full of your spirit, that you've made me clean so I can be a vessel full of your spirit. I want that, Lord, from you. See, the third, and I said, probably the pinnacle reason Luke includes this miracle of the healing of the lame man is because we are lame and weary and dry, and Jesus can save us. Can meet us right here. But lastly, in the first four verses of chapter four, it's also because this miracle and this, more importantly, preaching encouraged many to believe. Look at verse one of chapter four. And as they were speaking, the people, that is all these other Jews, all these other men of Israel, the priests, that's the leaders, the captain of the temple, he would have been the highest kind of military power in the temple. He says, listen, they... They came and the Sadducees came upon them. This is, they're rushing towards these guys. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus resurrection from the dead. Now, this, what, what God was doing through Peter in their midst was a great annoyance to religious authorities. You know why? Because the highest religious authorities saw this message of Jesus as a threat. They saw it as a threat. You can always tell when somebody thinks the church belongs to them when they don't want to submit it to Jesus. They saw Jesus as a threat instead of a savior. It's also because the Sadducees specifically, who at this point of history, the, the, there was a, a, a kind of a, a group of 70 men. It's known as the Sanhedrin. And at this point in history, the Pharisees and Sadducees both, Pharisees would have been like the, 
religious zealots of their day. These guys were really serious about the faith. They took the Bible very seriously. They believed in all the supernatural gifts. They, they, they taught the Bible at least to the degree that Jesus could say, do what they say, just don't do what they do, because they were also hypocrites. The Sadducees, on their hands, they were like the, you could say these were the secular religious experts of their day. So they believed in all the moral lessons of the first five books of Moses, that's Genesis through Deuteronomy, but they didn't believe in any of the supernatural. None of this angels or demons or miracles, none of that stuff. That's just metaphor for something else. And so the thing is, instead of taking God at his word, believing that God is the supernatural God he revealed himself to be, they're going to trust their own power, their own intellect. And when someone comes along, Peter, specifically as we'll see later on, is an untrained fisherman and preaches this powerful gospel, they're like, ah, uh, they're annoyed. But still many people believe. And in fact, they're so annoyed. Look at verse 3. It says, and they arrested them. That's Peter and John. And put them in the custody until the next day. For it was already evening. But what does it say, verse 4? Four? But many of those who heard the word believed. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. So what that means, listen, it means that this persecution actually brought more credibility to the gospel. Now, we shouldn't look to be persecuted. If you're looking to be persecuted, you're probably acting like a jerk. I'm not trying to be mean, but that's probably what's happening. You're probably just not thinking about how you're communicating. That's often when, when people go, oh, we're being persecuted. Maybe you're just being a bit of a jerk. But some of you guys have experienced legitimate persecution. You've spoken the truth in love. You've given a clear answer when you've been asked. You tried to, you, you stood by what you knew was your, your right conviction against the scripture. I can't be involved in that activity because I'm a Jesus follower and you've been persecuted for it. Be of good courage. Your persecution is actually going to mean credibility to the gospel. But also listen. It's important that we recognize it was the miracle that got their attention, but it was the word that brought them to faith. It was the word that brought them to faith. Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. I, I, we'll talk more about this as we go through Acts, but I honestly don't know why uh, God chooses to do miracles sometimes and chooses not to do miracles other times. I honestly don't have an answer for that. There's been times when I've prayed for people to be healed and I was convinced God was going to heal them. He doesn't. And there's times when I had almost no faith to pray, but I prayed just because it's my, I'm supposed to do that. I'm a pastor. I'm supposed to pray for people to be healed. <laughs> and then God supernaturally heals somebody. I, 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 don't, I, I don't have an, a clear answer for this, but here's what I know. If God, when God does miracles, he does so to get our attention, but he, gives our, he wants our attention to be on who Jesus is and what he said so our faith would be in him. Amen.